Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. John 17, 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these things, look up to heaven, and say, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son might glorify you, since you gave him authority over all people, so that he might give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you have you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. John seventeen twenty to twenty four. I pray not only for this, but also for those who believe in me through the world. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world might believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they might be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be completely one, that the world may know you. You have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. of an international church, isn't it, with fabulous Bible readings coming from our church family. Um, well, it's my privilege now to be able to introduce uh, Tim Blaber. Tim, most importantly, uh, not just a follower of Christ, but he's married to the amazing uh, Liz. They've come with their four children all the way up from Winchester today to be here. So there, there they are. We'll give them a wave. Thank you so much for coming. It's great. This is their first in-person service, I think, in some time. Um, so we're really grateful to have you. Tim um, is a really good friend. He previously led Christ Central Church in Portsmouth, a commissioned church, and a few years ago now, I think it is, moved to become director of training for the commissioned family of churches that we're a part of. He's a really uh, great guy and a gifted preacher. He's preached uh, before at the chapel so wonderfully on communion, if you can cast your mind back to those pre-COVID days. So let's give him a really warm welcome, round of applause as he comes up to bless us today. Well, good morning, everyone. It really is great to be here. Um, And Howard's not wrong. This is our first in-person service since everything kicked off. And just I was just stood there 
miming the words and just feeling that sense of privilege to be in the presence of God and also just to look around and see other people worshipping and enjoying him, those things which we just took for granted, which are so precious. The evidence that God loves many, many people and the privilege we have to be in his presence forever. So thank you. It's a joy to be here. We've got great friends here. Howard, who um, is a good friend. Um, it's great to work alongside Guy in serving the Commission family of churches. Guy and Heather, we're so grateful to them for how they lead us as a family of churches. Andy Megan right here, checking for heresy today for me. Andy, uh, I love Andy, leads one of our training courses and does that superbly well, the Read course. And uh, I'm sure you'll agree, fantastic Bible teacher, theologian, who I'm very confident will serve us as a family of churches in an increasing measure in the year, years ahead. So it's great to be here. So thank you so much. Um, today is Trinity Sunday, and Howard has asked me to speak on the Trinity. So just before I dive in, I want to recommend this book to you. This is the Good God book written by Michael Reeves on the Trinity. Now, this is well worth getting hold of and reading. Much of what's been written on the Trinity is in a systematic theology. Systematic theology is really helpful. With systematic theology, what you do is you take a subject and you go through the scriptures and you collate and gather the verses that speak on that particular subject and then there's teaching around it. It's very useful to have a systematic theology for when you've got a question about a particular area of Christian doctrine. However, it doesn't elicit, in my heart at least, the same kind of praise and devotion and worship that a book like this does, which has really been written, that we might not just approach the Trinity as a theological subject, and it isn't a concept, Trinity isn't an idea, Trinity is our God. And so reading this has stirred in me greater love and passion for the God that made me and saved me and has grown my understanding of what I think we'll all recognize is sometimes a challenging subject to grasp. This book lifts us out of subject to devotion. So I'd encourage you, please get hold of that, The Good God Book by Mike Reeves. St. Augustine, who's one of the greatest theologians the church has known, has this to say about the Trinity. In no other subject is error more dangerous, or inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. So when Howard asked me if I would speak on the Trinity, I experienced a wave of emotions from initially, oh no so genuinely oh wow what a privilege to speak on this wonderful topic and to try and convey the sentiments that i believe augustine was communicating here in my own words i want to illustrate the task that faces me today like this i want you to imagine that i started today's sermon with this today everybody I'm going to be speaking to you about Howard and Holly's marriage. I've got 50 points. I've done my research. I've done, done my, my homework. homework. Let's go. Now, that would be awkward, wouldn't it, for Howard and Holly, and definitely for me. Who am I to speak about their marriage? 
What authority do I have to speak about such a thing? But here's the crucial thing for you and I to understand. That for us to speak about Trinity is to speak about a relationship. And not just any relationship, but the ultimate relationship. The relationship from which every other relationship derives. The ultimate loving relationship. However, far from being a private subject, far from being something which no one should feel confident enough to speak about, we've been invited in on that everlasting relationship. And the ministry of Jesus is to come into the world and to reveal to the world this relationship. To show the world who God is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his being. If we're to know what God is like, we must look to Jesus. We must go to his word. And as we go to his word and as we ponder the things that Jesus said about God, we discover this breathtaking reality that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God, and there are three persons in the Godhead. Each person is God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, yet one God. And one of the challenges you and I have, I think, when we come to Trinity, is we spend so much time trying to get hold of this concept that we miss the revelation that Jesus has brought to us, which is that we might enjoy and glorify this God who is revealed to us as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to help us do this, what we're going to do is we're going to attempt to go back before the beginning. We're going to attempt to go back before the universe was made, and we're going to ask the question, what was God doing before the beginning? I wonder if you've ever speculated, what was God doing before the beginning? Churchill famously said, the farther back you look, the farther forward you see. So for you and I to know something of why we're here and where we're going, we can do no better than to go right back to before the beginning, the very beginning, and to ponder the one in whose image we have been made. So the first passage we had read out was from John 17, and I'm just going to read uh, a couple of those verses. Right in verse 1, this is Jesus the night before he's to be crucified. Imagine knowing you're going to be crucified. So we get to listen to him pray. Wow. Can you, eavesdropping in on God. Eavesdropping in on God, talking to God. Eavesdropping in on the eternal Son, talking to the eternal Father. On the night before he would suffer like no one has ever suffered. And as we today get to join in on eavesdropping in, let's listen to what Jesus, what's on his heart, what's on his mind, how he speaks to his God. And he says this in verse 1, having looked up, Father, 
Father. And in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Before the beginning was a glorious relationship. Before the beginning was a glorious relationship. Do you know this truth? God never became the Father. God never became the Son. There was no moment in time when God decided to, as it were, create the Son for himself. God has eternally been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in this incredibly glorious, wonderful relationship. A.W. Tozer famously said that the, f- the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The first thing that comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So let me ask you that question. What comes to mind when you think about God? Now, then let me ask you this. Does that thing which comes to mind when you think about God stand true of who God is from eternity past and into eternity future? See, if you say God is creator, if you say God is healer, if you say God is saviour, God is rescuer, all of those things are wonderfully true of who God is. They're wonderfully true of who God is, yet all of them are relative to his creation. He's the creator relative to a creation. He's the saviour relative to those he saves. He's the healer relative to those that he heals. In 500 years from now, I'm not going to be known as the director of training for commission. I hazard a guess. (laughs) I will be known as the son of God. Drilling down into my core identity. So if I go around thinking of myself primarily as the job that I do, I'm missing something of the identity of who I really am, who God's really made me to be. If you've done a Freedom in Christ course or you've done a discipleship course, a good one will always want you to drill down into what's going to be true of you in 500 years' time. Because we obsess so much about what we're doing presently or what we're going on to do and maybe look to derive our sense of worth and value from the things that we do, the roles that we have, our relative success, what we write on our CVs. But in 500 years from now, it doesn't. I don't think whether you've hit your targets for this month is going to really matter much. But being able to sit before the Father in heaven, knowing that you're a beloved child, now that matters a lot. And so when we think about who God is, I would just put to you, let's think about who God is in the eternal sense of who God is. And Jesus reveals that to us. So when we hear Jesus praying, isn't it amazing that he prays Abba, Father? He prays Dad, Father. And he speaks about a glory that he had before the world existed. Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation, before a star was flung into space. Before anything had been made, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, in a stunning, glorious relationship, no need in God 
whatsoever. Just, pure, perfect, blissful, uncorrupted relationship. Which begs the question, why did he create? Doesn't it? (laughs) Why create? This God who has eternally existed in this giving and receiving dynamic of glory, it's natural to who God is that it should overflow and overspill into a creation where men and women made in the image of God get to be like God in the dynamic of a loving relationship like this, which we're going to think about some more. The creation is an overflow of a God who is absolutely sufficient, glorious, wonderful. The creation is, the creation is made. In verse 3, Jesus prays this. This is eternal life. And I want to stop there. And I want to ask you another question. Do you ever think about eternity? Do you ever think about what living forever is like? Do you ever think of what would it mean for me to be an immortal, eternal being, to live forever and ever? I was a teenager and I flicked the radio on and I landed on one of those Christian stations which you kind of regrettably land upon every now and then. And I listened to this this guy give an illustration of eternity and he said this, And it scarred me. So you're welcome to it. I'm going to share it with you. He said, I want you to imagine that you could train a bird to pick up a grain of sand once every 1,000 years. And the Pacific Ocean was emptied of all water. And that bird drops a grain of sand into the Pacific Ocean once every 1,000 years. By the time that bird has stacked up a mountain of sand so that it ascends to the top of Mount Everest in size... That's your first second in eternity. I was like, what? I don't like the sound of that. This is how Jesus defines eternal life. He says this, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. Jesus isn't speaking in terms of this kind of endless succession of time. He's speaking about this relationship again. This is eternal life. What is eternal life, friends? What does it mean to to have eternal existence? Jesus says this is eternal life. Eternal life is knowing the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. So that when we say eternity has begun in our hearts already as Christians, what we mean by that is we know God now. We can know God. We can call upon God now as our Father. We can go boldly to him as a father receiving a child and be embraced and be loved and be welcomed. That is eternal life. What a privilege. What a privilege that is. Now that sounds far more attractive to me than the mountain of sand. And I'm grateful that there's no death and no virus 
and no fear of disappointment. I'm grateful for all that it entails. In the beginning was a glorious, glorious relationship. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. In the previous chapters, Jesus has been teaching his disciples all about this Holy Spirit, this counselor, paraclete. We have various interpretations for the word that Jesus uses here. One of the best is, uh, that I've come across is written by a guy called Dale, Dale Bruner in his commentary on John. He says, the true friend. He says, the true friend. Jesus is saying, the true friend is coming. It's better for you that I go, that he might come. And the Spirit of God comes, and Jesus says, he's going to take what is mine. He's going to give it to you. The Father gives me what is his, and I take what is his, and I give it to the Spirit of God who gives it to you. He comes to you. He's coming to inhabit you. He's coming to draw near to you. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, the true friend, to be with you forever. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. The promise is that which existed before the foundation of the world, this glorious relationship, has broken into our lives today so that we get to join. Isn't that amazing? If you're anything like me, as you're hearing those verses read, and it says, whoever keeps my word, you're going, do I? Always? And the reason why we go like that is because we have an accuser who would want to undermine your faith. The good news is that you don't have to listen to that voice. In fact, you mustn't. So what do we do with a verse like that? Here's the difference. The person who's received the Spirit, the person who loves Jesus, wants to keep his word. That's crucial. So you can say, well, I know I need to keep his word, so I'm trying. The difference is I want to, because I love him. So, so again, this is Dale Bruner. This is so helpful. I found this so helpful. If you're questioning, am I one of those? Do I keep his word? Let me ask you, do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to obey him? Do you want to follow after him? Do you want him to speak into your life? You can be encouraged today that you love him. Because you can't want to do what he desires of you unless your heart's been changed. Spurgeon has this great illustration. He, he says there was a woman who, who came to him after a service and said, I, I, I'm racked with terrible doubt. And he said to her, well, what is the nature of this doubt? Speak to me. She said, oh, I, I know, I love God, but I just don't know if God loves me. I don't know if God loves me. And he said, oh, woman, this is Spurgeon's word. Oh, woman, that's... That's a doubt that could never trouble me, not by any stretch of the imagination, because I'm absolutely certain of this, that the heart is so corrupt and dead, naturally, that love for God never did get into that heart without God first putting it there. He said, you can rest quite certain that if you love God, God loves you. Because we love because he first loved us. And so our want, our desire to do his will and his word 
is a supernatural event in your life. You can't want to... You're, you're, we're objects we're of wrath. We're enemies of God until God comes and changes our hearts. But wonderful when he illuminates our hearts so that we want to do his will and word. Next, before the beginning, there was love. Verse 24. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Before the foundation of the world was love. Hallelujah. Isn't that good to know? Many people like the idea of God being a God of love. Many different religions would say God is a God of love. C.S. Lewis was, was famous for once walking in on a staff coffee break at uh, at Oxford and he said what are you all talking about he said oh we're debating the difference between world religions and what makes Christianity different he said oh that's easy it's grace it's easy it's grace you may have heard that said before grace that we don't earn our salvation that God gifts it to us grace and he's right but the reason why grace is so defining of Christianity is because God is a God of generosity and love and always has been A God who gives and gives and gives and gives. Not a God who says, I take. He gives. The evil one is the one who says, take the apple, the fruit. Don't know it was an apple. We always assume it is. Take. God says, I give you. But if God is a God of love, but God is one person, then who is God loving before he creates the universe? If love is core and foundational to God's very nature, who does God love before God creates? See, a Jehovah's Witness will say, God is a God of love, but God is one person. Allah is a God of love, but is one person. It is distinctly Christian to say God is one and three persons. And I'm so grateful that's true. Because if it isn't true, then love cannot be foundational to the very nature of God. He needed to create in order to love. Do you see that? you see how crucial that is? If, if, if God is not at least two persons, then who's God loving before he creates? C.S. Lewis puts it like this. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Only a Trinitarian God who has eternally existed in perfect loving relationship can assure you today of the love that you crave.
each of us, I'm sure, will acknowledge that deep, deep in us is a, is a longing to be loved and to love. In each of us is a longing to love and to be loved. And that manifests itself in all kinds of moments and all kinds of pains. Longing for a partner. I want to love someone. I want to be loved. Longing for children. I want to love children. I want to be loved. Longing for recognition in the workplace and for respect. I want to be respected. I want to be appreciated. I want to be loved. I want to be noticed. I don't just want to be a nobody. I want to be noticed. I want to feel like I'm noticeable, that people recognize and notice me, that, that people would love me. I, I want that. Of course you do. It might look slightly different from one of us to the next, but the root is the same. That in each and every one of us is a sense that if I was able to perfectly love, and to be perfectly loved, that formula would result in perfect happiness. If I could be perfectly loved, and I could perfectly love, that I would never disappoint. If I could have a relationship where I never disappointed, and I was never disappointed. A relationship where I was never hurt. A relationship where I could never hurt. A relationship where I would know a love that could never be lost or taken from me. A love that would last forever. If I could have that, that, I'd be content. You see, you long for that love. The reason why you and I long for that is because we're made in the image of God who has always loved and been loved from eternity past. Before the beginning, there was love. The Son received the love of the Father. The Father received the love of the Son in the power of the loving Spirit. So that when the voice from heaven thundered at Jesus' baptism, as the dove rested upon him, he said this, This is my Beloved son, with him I'm well pleased. Love is foundational to who God is. Love is the ultimate affection because it's the one that's always existed and it's the one that always will exist. It's the one that Jesus speaks of in the final moments before he goes to the cross. You loved me before the foundation of the world. I wonder if you're familiar with that psalm, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I had a friend of mine who quoted that to me when the house they were going for fell through. <laughs> I don't get it. I'm delighting myself in God. Why has this not happened? I desired this house. Oh, you've got the verse all wrong. Obviously. I'm sure I was more gracious than that when, when we're having the conversation. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. The desires of your heart are found through delighting yourself in the Lord. Delighting yourself in the Lord. 
That's how they're satisfied. And when I'm looking to someone or something else to fulfill that longing in me to be loved and to love, I fail to find my heart's desires to be satisfied. They're only fully enjoyed and consummated through loving God. And everything else in in my life that I love is rightly loved when I love God first. So if I'm idolizing my my kids who are listening at the back, if I love them more than I love God, I'm not loving them as I should love them. And if I'm loving my wife more than I love God, I'm not loving her as I should love her. And my love for her will be a form of idolatry which will be dangerous. But if my heart is delighted first in the eternal love of God, then I'm a better husband, I'm a better father, I'm a better friend. And that is, 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 is a commitment that the evil one hates. And so it's always tempting me to be selfish. And it's why the very nature of love is giving, because that's how God's always done it. The creation overflows from a giving God who's eternally giving and receiving of love. And so how do I love as I should? I give. I deny myself. I prefer others. Isn't it just foundational to the world? Why is it so hard? Because my flesh remains fallen. My spirit's alive. So I want to do these things, but I often don't because my flesh remains fallen and I remain weak and I struggle and I battle daily to overcome the temptations of the flesh to be led by the Spirit to do those things that I want to do. Sounds like Paul in Romans 7. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? You're in a battle, but hallelujah, not on your own. For the true friend lives in you to teach you and to help you, to guide you, to help you to overcome, to help you pursue after love. And then finally, before the beginning was a plan. This one is mind-boggling. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing through the Holy Spirit, every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Listen to this. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Before the foundation of the world was a plan. That plan was that you and I might be in Christ. This is what Paul writes here. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Chosen in him. How do I get into him? Through believing in him. Through confessing him. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And that he's been resurrected from the dead. Hang on. Do you seriously mean that before an atom was created, do you seriously mean that from the depths of the glorious, loving relationship included a cross, a crucifixion of the 
eternally beloved son? Unless I'm reading this wrong, that's precisely what Paul is teaching us here. There was a plan for you and I to be gathered in to the eternal, glorious, loving relationship of God that included the humiliation, the torture, the despising, the hatred of the Son of God. Now, if ever there were a moment where I felt utterly inadequate to convey any sense of what that means, it's now. And I praise God that he's given us communion to communicate something to us which words fail. And that as the bread is broken and as the wine is received, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is, it, Jesus knew that preachers like me would really struggle <laughs> to really articulate what's happening at the cross. And so he engages all of our senses that we might taste, that we might eat, that the verbs in the Garden of Eden, which led to death, take and eat, are the verbs which, through the cross, lead to eternal life, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Before the beginning was a glorious plan. Through the cross of Christ, we discover the depths of suffering he endured that we might enjoy for all time that which Christ knew from before the beginning. None of it took him by surprise. All of it was planned. And I appreciate there are questions about the origins of evil. Where did it come from? How did it arrive? Questions that no man has ever really been able to satisfactorily answer. So I'm not going to attempt to. But what I do know is it didn't come as a surprise. And what I do know is that what was intended for evil, God intended for good, the saving of countless millions of lives, actually. So that we today are recipients of every spiritual blessing that's in Christ. And one day when our body is glorified, we will do what we want to do, always. <laughs> there will be no conflict anymore. There will be no pain. There will be no hurt. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And that's why the psalmist could write, your love is better than life itself. What remains eternally is what was there before the beginning, a glorious, loving relationship, including every nation, tribe and tongue gathered around the throne enjoying and delighting in the Father, Son and Holy Spirit forevermore. Forevermore we will live with the Spirit of God in us helping us to glorify and enjoy him. And I can't wait for that day where no sin remains and it's unblemished and it's pure and it's spotless. So we're going to stand and I'm going to invite the band to come.
further back we look, the further forward we see. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is our God. It's not just a theological truism, not a concept or an idea. This is who God is. This is the God that Jesus has revealed to us. And hallelujah, he's been revealed. Jesus has revealed God to us like this, that we can confidently assert God is love. And that love has cast out fear and led us to behold Jesus in his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of your son. We thank you for this plan. This plan that was put in place before the first atom was made. This plan that had your son clothe himself in our flesh. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the perfect life of obedience you lived. Thank you for being our substitute, for going to that cross. Thank you for simultaneously upholding the universe and suffering unimaginable hell that our punishment and our judgment might be lifted from us, that our punishment became yours. Thank you for rising gloriously three days later. On the third day, you appeared. Thank you that you remain seated enthroned on high in glory. Thank you that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God our Father. Thank you that you are always moving and giving and glorifying the Father, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the love the Father has for you. And that, in a crazy way, we are loved in the same way because of what he's done. Let us today, Lord, as we respond now, as we go to break bread in a moment, just as we prepare our hearts, as we worship, help us just to, again, stand in awe at who you are and what you've done. We believe. We believe this is our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.